Hello, I am Michael Penny. And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I shall be reading some of the scripture references. And I'm William Henry. Now, in our last podcast, we talked about the nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus was proclaiming. And we suggested that it, that it was the kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament, which was going to be set up on the earth. That's in line with what it says in the Lord's Prayer. Yep, that's right. But we skipped over Luke chapter 6, and that chapter contains a lot of really important stuff. Jesus gives detailed teaching to his disciples and to the people who are listening. This is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. So is that the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount then? Which is think is in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Well, but probably not. Luke 12 states that Jesus went out into the hills to pray probably somewhere in Galilee, but then in verse 17, it says that he went down and stood on a level place, hence the Sermon on the Plain. Okay, yeah, I think that's probably right, and I think a lot of the teaching, though, is certainly similar to the Sermon on the Mount, so it's probably a good idea if we refer across to Matthew as we go through. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, that would be a good thing to do. Luke's Sermon on the Plain is somewhat shorter than Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. But interestingly, Luke includes some of the teaching found in Matthew's chapter 5 to 7 at other places in his gospel. So I think we need to appreciate that the Lord gave the same teaching on more than one occasion. Many times, probably. So it is worth comparing all he had to say by looking at the two accounts. Right. But before Luke tells us about the teaching, he describes how the Lord was doing not only a lot of teaching in that place, but also a lot of healing. And we read that in Luke chapter 16, verses 17 to 18. He went down with them, that is the 12 disciples, and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Wow, a large crowd. <laughs> that must have been a lot of people. And Luke describes them as a large crowd of disciples, so far more than just the 12 then. And Luke says it was a great number of people from a very wide area. Yeah, that's right. It says that there were people from Judea and Jerusalem, which, of course, are south of Galilee, and from Tyre and Sidon, which was substantially a Gentile area, and it was quite far north. So people from all over the place. So do you think the audience was both Jews and Gentiles? Mm, I, I don't really think so. If there were any Gentiles, there wouldn't have been very many. Although the population of the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon were largely Gentile, there were also major Jewish communities in that area. Anyway, the Lord made it clear on several occasions that his ministry was only to those he called the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he called them in Matthew 15, 24, I think it was, for example. So I think it would be a predominantly Jewish audience. And we need to remember, verse 20 says, looking at his disciples, he said, which suggests that the teaching was primary for their benefit. Yeah, uh, good point that. I think also it's the same at the start of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It says that his disciples came to him and he began teaching them. 
So the message is mainly for the disciples, though it's clear, of course, that he was speaking loudly enough for everyone to hear, and the crowd was certainly listening to him. Yep. Okay. Let's begin at the beginning. That's always a good place to start, you know. Well, there's a song coming on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Anyway, the Lord starts with a whole series of Beatitudes, blessings, just as Matthew's Sermon on the Mount does. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. That's Luke 6, 20 to 21. Yeah, that's actually slightly different from what it says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. I mean, there he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here in Luke, he seems to be thinking more about physical poverty and hunger rather than spiritual things. So do you think that's a deliberate difference? Mm, I, I don't know. I don't think that the Lord was recommending poverty and hunger as virtues worthy of reward. But perhaps it means that people who realize their need before God and the fact that they can bring him nothing, um, such people are more likely to seek his blessings than those who are self-sufficient in material terms. Yes, but looks has got a special soft spot for the outsider, hasn't he? So maybe he was thinking of those who are at the lower end of society. Luke also says that there's a blessing for those who weep now, which which isn't in Matthew, I think. And he says that in future they will laugh. So there's a bit of the old role reversal there. He's also about to pronounce woes on rich people. So I don't think it's focused entirely on spiritual issues. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I think spiritual issues are his main emphasis. You have to look at the context. In Luke 6.22, Luke brings them back to the key issue, which is suffering for the Lord. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. He is really thinking of people who suffer and are persecuted because they are the Lord's followers. They are seeking righteousness in the world, but not finding it. They are weeping at the evil and injustice in society. They are the ones who will be blessed. And Paul certainly understood that. Uh, listen to what he wrote in uh, Romans 8.18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, be that will be revealed in us. Yes, and I think this line of teaching comes out more forcefully in Matthew. In, in Matthew, there are certainly some blesseds which are not picked up by Luke. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And I think... These features are, are not relevant solely to those who are at the bottom end of the social scale. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. However, Matthew, like Luke, ends up by saying that those who are insulted for the Lord's name are to be blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's Matthew 5.11. Yeah, that sounds horribly like the present day in some countries, doesn't it? Where Christians are denounced as evil and mocked and ridiculed and, and in some cases killed, all because of their faith in Christ. Yeah, yeah sadly, that's true. Anyway, now, back to Matthew and Luke. Both say that people who show these characteristic traits, 
spiritual poverty, i.e. humility, meekness, hungering for righteousness, etc., will be rewarded in eternal life. In fact, the conclusions in both Matthew and Luke are almost identical. In Matthew 5, 12, it says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in Luke 6, 23, it has, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So the reward that they're going to enjoy then is in heaven. So, oh, hang on a minute. Um, in the last podcast, did we not suggest that the context of the Lord's ministry was not heaven, but the kingdom of heaven, which is to come on the earth when he comes to establish that kingdom? Oh, yeah, that's right. That is certainly the setting of the Lord's proclamation of the kingdom. And I think that when he speaks of heaven in the Gospels, he is generally referring to the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, which is to come upon the earth. You reckon? Yeah, I think I think so. Remember the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And with these beatitudes, it is actually clearer in Matthew's gospel than in Luke. Listen to this in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think that came from Matthew 5, verses 3, 5, and 10, I think. So there's the context that Matthew clearly spells out. The kingdom of heaven is yours. You will inherit the earth, which may be better translated, you will inherit the land. And it shows the geographical nature of their hope. However, the idea that Jesus was expressing those words actually comes from the Psalms. Psalm 37, 10 to 11 says this. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Right, but the reward is a bit far off, isn't it? If they have to wait until Christ returns and sets up the kingdom on earth, blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who mourn, they will be comforted. But when the kingdom comes, that's a long time to wait, isn't it? <laughs> well... Hang on. Three things. First of all, remember in our last podcast, we explained that the kingdom would have come in then if the people had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And second point, we need to remember that these people were under the domination of Rome. And the third point is that the word blessed is the Greek makarios which can take the meaning of being happy or being content. Thus, we could paraphrase the Beatitudes as follows. You who are poor, be content for now, for yours is the coming kingdom. You who are hungry, be content for now, for you will soon be satisfied. You who weep now will soon laugh in the kingdom. Oh, so he's saying in effect, that those who weep now because of the Roman domination perhaps will soon be laughing. Yeah, yeah. As we said, the kingdom of heaven could have been set up pretty soon, certainly within the lifetime of some of those standing there. However, in some ways, we today have got the same kind of assurance as these people. 
he will bring blessing to us if we follow his ways, not necessarily on this earth in terms of wealth and fame and physical blessings, but perhaps by what Paul calls, calls spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And I think we've talked about them in some of the earlier podcasts. Yeah, yeah, we have. And, and we also have a great advantage, you know. At that time, when the Lord was speaking to these people, the Holy Spirit had not been given. But it was not very long afterwards that he came on the day of Pentecost. And that changed the whole relationship between man and God. So then, although these words spoken by Jesus were to a people who are looking for a different hope from us, the kingdom to be established on the earth and centered in Israel, these words are still relevant to us? Yeah, absolutely. It is still the Lord's will that we should be meek, humble in spirit, and if necessary, take our place in suffering for his name. He is unchanging in his nature, and the lifestyle that he wants his people to follow is very countercultural. That was true in Jesus' day, and it's certainly very true of us in our secular society of today. Okay, in verse 24 of chapter 6, Luke goes in a different direction. He starts giving a series of woes, and these seem to, to correspond to the blessings in the previous verses. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. That's in Luke 6, verses 24 to 26. So, blessed are the poor, but woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry, but woe to the well-fed. Blessed are those who weep, but woe to you who laugh. Blessed are you when men speak evil of you, but woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. It does seem like he's talking about material wealth again. Do you not think so? Oh, I, I'm, I'm still not sure. I, I think it may be more likely to do with attitudes. The wrong attitude often lies behind the possession of wealth. For example, some who are rich feel that they do not need anything or anyone even. With some, there is a feeling of self-sufficiency, that they can make people think that they do not need the Lord. It, it's not impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom, but it can be extremely difficult. You know, when we get to Luke 18, we'll find the incident of the rich ruler who asked Jesus what he should do to inherit eternal life. It's a very sad story, but an important one to those people today who are well off and who may be in danger of looking to their wealth for their security. Right. Yeah. But from there, Jesus goes on to talk about love, doesn't he? Luke chapter 6, mm -hmm. verse 27, he says this. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill treat you. That's really difficult. But Jesus told his disciples that they were to love one another with the same kind of love that he showed them. But he didn't instruct them to love their enemies to that extent. <laughs> That's true. He didn't, thankfully. In effect, he told them to do a good turn to someone who had done them a bad turn. He also told them they were to bless. And you know the Greek word is eulogia, which means 
to speak well of. So they were to bless, speak well of someone who had spoken ill of them. And they were to pray for such people. So one aspect of loving your enemies is to bless them, which means to speak well of them. That may be very difficult, but this is a very practical love, a love of doing rather than a love of feeling. That was how they were to show love to their enemies. And, you know, that is it's the same for us today, you know. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But it, it just seems to get more complicated the further we go into it. The next couple of verses, I think, are even more difficult to carry out. In these verses, Jesus tells them what additional things they need to do in relation to their enemies. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. That's Luke 6, verses 29 to 30. So do you think that's all to be taken literally? I mean, if you hit me, should I seriously encourage you to hit me again? Oh, that sounds good, Will. <laughs> no, um, but, but I think the slap on the cheek may be more an insult than an attack. Maybe a backhand slap across the face from a superior, maybe a, a Roman officer or a soldier even. It's non-retaliation that is being talked about here. And for those people Jesus was talking to at the time under Roman domination, sorry, under Roman domination, but with a possibility of God's kingdom on earth coming soon, non-retaliation and compliance with the powers that be, well, that may have been a sensible route, don't you think? Yeah, that's probably true. But I must admit, I find this all a bit unsettling. I wonder if the Lord is exaggerating his, treatment, his teaching to get this point across. However, you know, as you said, it might be a reflection of the fact that the kingdom was expected to be set up soon. So this would be a short term measure. But I don't think Jesus is seriously arguing for his followers to offer all their possessions to people who are trying to steal from them. I think the attitude is to show favor and to bless or speak well of those who abuse us, not just to be nice to those who are nice to us. But I think the climax of it all comes in verse 31 of Luke chapter 6. Do to others as you would have them do to you. That's right. And Jesus goes on to say that if you only love people who love you or do good to those who pay you back, then there's no great merit in that. Even evil people do that. But then in verses 35 to 36 of Luke chapter 6, he really spells it out. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Yeah, I, I think that uh, last point is, uh, is the really important point. If we want to be true children of our Heavenly Father, that is exactly the lifestyle we should practice. That is exactly the way we should behave. This is the way the Lord Jesus was when he was on earth, merciful and selfless. And it is God's will that we should be conformed to the image of his Son. And our attitude, as Paul says in Philippians 2.5, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Amen to that. But Jesus then moves on to talk about another aspect of the way we should live, namely not to judge one another. Do not judge and you will not be judged. 
Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's Luke 6, verses 37 to 38. And that seems to be suggesting that if I don't forgive someone, then in turn, I will not be forgiven. And that's not the only place where Jesus says that. In Matthew 6, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, he says this. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That's Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15. So is that really what he means? Well, I think this is a very serious point, Will. I don't think Jesus means that if we fail to forgive one person for something terrible they have done to us or to my wife or to my children, then God will withdraw his forgiveness from us. After all, failure to forgive is a sin. But all our sins are forgiven if we believe in Jesus, that he died for our sins. So is it more the kind of people we should be then? Yeah, probably. I think so. Christian believers should be people who are meek, who take the abuse they receive on account of following the Lord, who forgive their enemies and do not judge or condemn other people. They have promised that they will receive the Lord's blessings for being like this. Jesus makes this point a few verses later when he says that our good or bad behavior stems from the kind of people, an expression you just used, stems from the kind of people we are. Listen to this. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the goods stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. And that's Luke 6, verses 43 to 45. Yeah, I think this point of not judging one another is really important. James talks about it too in his epistle in chapter 5 and verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. That's right. In Luke 6, Jesus tells an exaggerated story. I love his exaggerations. An exaggerated story to get his point across about judging other people. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, while you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And that's in Luke 6, verses 41 to 52. Brilliant, isn't it? But I think that's the problem, isn't it? It's really easy to see faults in someone else and, and yet be blind to our own weaknesses. And let's face it, we all have different weaknesses, different things we're susceptible to. Yeah, that's right. And what the Lord is really looking for in his people is for his people to be a community where we support and encourage one another to be more like him and not for us to be a group who criticize and complain about one another. 
Yeah, and we find that throughout the scriptures, it's like that, isn't it? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, Paul says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitudes should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Yes, Christ is always our extreme, our supreme example, isn't he? Yeah, and as, as Sylvia just read there, our attitude should be the same as his. But it's dead easy for us to talk about these things and then, well, not actually do them. That's a great human failing, isn't it? And Jesus highlights this at the end of this teaching on the Sermon on the Plain. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's Luke 6, 46. Yeah, no, no point in that, is there? But the standard the Lord was calling his disciples to was extremely high. This really comes across in Matthew's Gospel. There, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like this. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew 5, verse 20. And then in verses 48, we read, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the Lord is introducing something really new there. The standards he was demanding went right down into the hearts of his listeners. It was not about following outward rules and regulations. It was a matter of the heart, what people were really like deep inside. Yeah, that's right. And it also goes against the grain of conventional wisdom, so-called. Instead of being aggressively ambitious, making people aware of our achievements, hiding our weaknesses and imposing our will on others, we are to be poor or humble in spirit putting others before ourselves, forgiving those who have wronged us, and accepting persecution and suffering for his sake. And there should be no hypocrisy. In his followers, there was to be no difference between how they appeared in public and how they really were inside. Yeah, that's right. I think Jesus repeatedly criticised the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy didn't he? They looked good on the outside, but they were corrupt inside. I think this teaching was really new wine, as he describes it. Yeah, but we mustn't forget that Jesus's teaching came out of the cradle of the Old Testament. He had come to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to destroy them, as he said in Matthew 5, 17. God has always been concerned with the heart. This is what Jeremiah promised long ago when he spoke about the new covenant. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's in Jeremiah 31 verse 33. So in effect, this is the plan God had for his people all along, that they would follow his ways from their hearts. They would then at that time when Christ was on earth and just after, a potential for the new covenant to be implemented. It's a, it's a very high standard, isn't it? High standard that's expected, but there's going to be blessing when the kingdom on earth is set up and the new covenant is established with Israel. But what about us? Is there any benefit for the here and now for Christians today in the 21st century? 
Oh, yes, there certainly is. Look at how Jesus ends this section in Luke 6, verses 47 to 49. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and put them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who has built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Yes, exactly. And there's a similar story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Those who heard the teaching of Jesus but not obeyed it were building their lives without foundation. And then when hard times come, they wouldn't be able to stand. Yeah, uh, James says something similar, doesn't he? But he uses a slightly different illustration. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately gets what it looks like. That's James 1 verses 22 to 24. Oh, gosh, have you ever forgotten what you look like, Mike? Oh, come on, Will. Well, maybe occasionally, but oh, that's a leading question, you know, boy. Yeah, once seen, never forgotten. Okay, <laughs> but um, the man or woman who does obey what the Lord says does remember what he looks like. And a person like that builds their life on a rock, as Jesus says. And people who are like that are blessed in all they do. And that's what James just goes on to say. So. This is a theme that keeps recurring in scripture. In Psalm 1, we get a picture of a person who doesn't walk in the ways of the ungodly people, but who delights in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 verse 3 describes him in this way. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Yes, there's another lovely picture, isn't it? A tree securely planted by a stream with deep roots fed by the water, able to stand against the wind. So we have lots of blessings, but also lots of instructions. And, you know, and if you stop to think about it, it must have been very hard road for the disciples to walk, especially as opposition to Christ and his followers was growing. That's, that's right, isn't it? Jesus was about to reveal to the disciples that his ministry was not going to end in immediate success, but he was going to be arrested by the Jewish leaders and crucified. And I think it's this revelation and what follows that we'll plan to think about in the next podcast. So thank you very much for listening.